E-commerce isn't just an aspect of growing a successful wine business, it is crucial. And that's why I strongly recommend working with Offset Partners. As a proudly independent e-commerce technology and brand design company based in wine country, Offset understands the operational nuances and the customer service imperatives that distinguish a great online buying experience from a mediocre one. And that's why leading and legendary brands like Saxum, Arnott Roberts, and Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant choose Offset's proprietary commerce technology platform to power their DTC sales. If you're an allocated winery or a high-touch merchant that values an elegant, effective commerce solution for both you, your customers, and your team, reach out to the smart team at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com, to craft a better direct-to-consumer experience. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. They grow underground, pigs love them, and they're one of the most expensive items on earth. That's right, I'm talking about our favorite fungi, truffles. We're just about to get into high truffle season, so it's time for a truffle refresher. There are many species of truffles, but two main species are at the top of wish lists. Black Paragord winter truffles from France, these are Tuber melanosporum, and white winter truffles from northern Italy, these are Tuber magnatum pico. Truffles grow underground on the roots of oak, hazel, and linden trees. Within their knobby masses, they contain spores, and truffles emit an aromatic steroid, androstenone, to attract animals that can dig them up and spread these spores. Forest critters, insects, pigs, dogs, and people are all sniffing out this subterranean fungus. Truffles have a symbiotic relationship with the tree roots that nourish them. They send out filaments that connect to the roots, This substance changes the soil around the tree, and trees laden with truffles often have a soil patch around the base where grass cannot grow. Instead, the soil looks bubbly and dark brown, and it's called brulee. Pigs can sniff out truffles, but using them is dangerous business because they want the truffles as much as we do. In fact, androstenone makes sows want to mate. Removing the truffle from the pig's mouth can injure the truffle and the truffle hunter. Dogs are the popular choice for sniffing out truffles these days, but some people simply look for flies buzzing around the roots. Truffles are usually within a foot underneath the ground, but some are much deeper. There are also Himalayan truffles from China. These are tuber indicum. In the mid-90s, scandal erupted when consumers discovered that tuber indicum were being passed off as French black winter truffles, including some inoculation stock of new truffle orchards, which has top producers recently testing the DNA of their products. Truffle orchards in Australia have been successful and have created a source for winter truffles during the North Hemisphere's summer. But despite the high quality of the Australian tuber melanosporum, some North Hemisphere markets don't pay as much for winter truffles in the summertime especially when they can buy summer truffles from Burgundy for much less. And why are white truffles considered to be premium? Aside from their rarity, white truffles contain some sulfur compounds that black truffles do not, giving them a stronger flavor. What are sommeliers pairing with truffles these days? Here are a few ideas from sommeliers Julie Dalton, Jacob Gregg, Carrie Lynn Strong, and M.S. Christopher Bates. 
I'm Julie. I'm in Baltimore. I'm at the Four Seasons, and I work at Michael Mina's Wit and Wisdom. I've had two interesting experiences with black truffles recently that comes to mind. One, we had a risotto with lobster finished with black truffles. I mean, you have two like competing stars here. You have lobster and you have truffle, two amazing ingredients. And how, how am I to make it work? And, and at first you think, hello, you need a white wine with this. You need like a rich white burgundy. But then you throw in the variable of black truffle and the mushroom broth. And it's like there's all these deep, dark mushrooms with this lobster. So you have base notes and high notes and black truffle. So I tried two things. I tried a white burgundy, just to be true to the classics, and then I really wanted to try a Brunello. I wanted the Brunello to win, and it didn't. The lobster was too high of a note. The Brunello drowned out the black truffle, whereas the Chardonnay, it really, really elevated the truffle of the dish. But white truffle, for me, I had in Italy once a beautiful experience, and it's supposed to be that way, right? When you're in Montalcino and they, and they give you bistecca alla Fiorentina, and there was spinach, and there's a big old slab of red meat there, but then shaved with white truffles because it was November, even though it was from a different region, Brunello just worked beautifully. Things like Brola are really traditional. But doing something a little bit fun like Ruque can be a lot of fun too. It's really floral, almost like a terpene-driven red wine that has tons of intensity on the younger side. Uh, this earth-driven characteristic, almost like Barbera or Dolcetto, that, that can work really well, especially since we're coming into white truffle season. I would definitely go with Nebbiolo. So you could either go with Barolo or Barbaresco. I would definitely go with a more traditional style producer like a Conterno or even Giacosa. They have more earthy tones to them and they use more neutral oak, whereas more modern styles are going to use more new oak, new wood, and bring out more fruit, fruit forward flavors in the wine. So I think that going with a more earth tone style would be better. When you're shaving the truffles, is everyone trying to get more pieces? Oh, absolutely. They never think that it's enough. <laughs> For me, with truffles, uh, obviously there's a lot of classic and obvious choices, but um, I always think anytime I'm going to use truffles, I want it on something super simple. Um, so the first thing that I always think about with truffles is gnocchi. Gnocchi, butter, truffles, life is good. And if I'm doing something like that, there's a lot of options, but I think probably my favorite, my favorite is uh, some champagne with bottle age, something like some old Champagne Charlie or... Uh, something along those lines, like um, Old Heidzik. Those wines are just absolutely gorgeous with, with truffles, butter, and gnocchi. Happy truffle hunting. Sustainability has never been more important, and DM is at the forefront of environmental responsibility. Having set a new standard in the world of closures, DM not only excels in the quality of its technological cork closures, but also demonstrates an incredible commitment to caring for the environment. DM has taken steps to significantly reduce its carbon footprint, embracing green electricity and renewable energy in its factories. By 2025, they aim to reduce their direct emissions from energy and processing by 55%. Their sustainable closure solution, Origine by DM, combines natural cork with a binding agent composed of 100% bio-based materials and a beeswax emulsion a successful testament to DM's commitment to eco-friendly practices. DM has pioneered a responsible and long-term vision for cork forests, playing a crucial role in sequestering hundreds of thousands of tons of CO2 each year. Planting thousands of new cork trees, 
DM actively contributes to sustaining our planet's natural resources, and that is something we all benefit from every day. DM doesn't just offer technically advanced court closures, they also lead in environmental responsibility. Learn more about DM's commitment at dm-closures.com forward slash I-D-T-T. That's D-I-A-M-closures with an S dot com forward slash I-D-T-T for more information. Josh Green of Wine and Spirits Magazine on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? Great to be here. So you're a Princeton man. I was at one time. Lived there for 25 years. Four of them in school. Yeah. And had you always kind of done the wine thing? or? No. Actually, first 12 years of my life, I didn't do much wine stuff. Yeah. My parents <laughs> didn't drink wine. We didn't drink any wine. At Not all. a lot of communion. Manischewitz. Manischewitz. What's right, right, right. So no communion yeah. then. <laughs> no, they had a little liquor cabinet in the family room. That all the stuff that people had given them. Yeah. Real strange collection of things. And when we were all teenagers, we raided that and filled it with water. And they didn't have any clue that anything was leaving the liquor cabinet because they never touched it. You're like, I thought this was a red wine. <laughs> Seems to be white now. <laughs> no, but um, when I was 12, I went to Spain. And that's when I started drinking wine. Yeah. And, and what part of Spain did you go to? Galicia. Oh, okay. Because yeah. you've always kind of also been a Rioja man. Yeah, I think that's when I got turned on to Rioja. Uh, we had these huge lunches. It was it was with the Lugris family who have a restaurant here in town. And Mark was about a year younger than me. He now runs the restaurant. And he was really into soccer. They wanted a sort of an older brother to take sort of take him under his wing. So we just played soccer all day um, when we weren't eating these huge lunches with wine. And I think that's really where I got to love Rioja. Yeah. So in your teens, basically. That was when I was 12. Yeah. Yeah. So those are your teens. We refer to those as. 12? No, 13. 13. No, teens. 12. Teens is yeah. 10 plus a number. Nah, nah. That's, no. that's what teens are. Yeah. No, Thir I'm sure 13. of this. 13. Yeah, 13 is where it starts. Your teenage years are the 10 plus the, that's, that's, hmm. that's where teen comes, like the 10, T-E. Interesting. See, as, a, as an editor, I always thought that teens See, started with exactly, 13. Exactly. Yeah. This is the editorial 11, process 12, at work. 13, For yeah. those aspiring <laughs> writers, these are the kind of conversations you could have often if you decide to submit a piece. They're really any magazine, but a, you know, a strong editor such as yourself. And now you are a wine editor and publisher of a magazine. And how did that come about? I mean, how do we connect those dots between your teen years and, and now? Well, I worked in restaurants all through my teen years, Went from, actually from the time I was 13, probably till I was 22, I worked in restaurants almost every summer when I wasn't working in a retail shop. I worked at um, Nee James Wine and Spirits when Jimmy Nee James opened it in, in Stockbridge. And I used to take home, I remember taking Zaka Mesa Zin from like 1978 home and really loving it. it was I would really love to try that wine. That was a beautiful, beautiful wine. And I think that um, Bob Lindquist made that wine. Yeah, it sounds yeah. about the right era. Yeah. Uh, missed it by a couple of years. Yeah, no. He was around that time. He but, was around. Yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. First vintage 79, I think. When he was there, yeah. Yeah. But they, they were making yeah. really cool wines then. Yeah. And um, it, it would have been Jim. Jim would have been there. Yeah. And so I, I would bring wine home and check it out. And um, 
And I guess when I was in college, I became kind of the go-to guy for people who wanted an advice on wine. I don't know why, but you know, like I had friends who were drinking wine and wanted to know like what they should buy and they would come to me because I was sort of being a psalm on when I, after I finished working at that store, I started working in some higher level restaurants up in Lenox and um, ended up working at Wheatley. I was the only person who could open a wine bottle of all the people. The Simons, who still own it, um, they had just bought the place. And it's beautiful, beautiful 19th century resort. I mean, it was, it was built as a house um, for princess, for an Italian princess. Um, and they brought all these Italian stonemasons over, all the brick over from Italy, built this incredible place. It was pretty run down in 1980 when the Simons, I think they bought it in 1980. They had just started there. They had um, picked up a staff from the prior owners that literally could not work a wine key at all. So because I could do that, they made me the Psalm. And I worked there for a summer. Um, didn't do a whole lot of buying. I did the buying with them, and but I would serve all the wine. And um, my, my biggest memory of that place actually was, it's, it's right next to Tanglewood. And I was working behind the bar one night and Leonard Bernstein came in to the bar. And I looked up and I thought, I know that guy. He looks really familiar. And he looked at me and he said, David. And he came over and gave me this big kiss on the lips. And I said, uh, I'm not David. <laughs> and you're like, I'm also not a teen. Get it straight. It completely freaked me out. I was like, Did he ever explain any of that? No, he said, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize that. I thought it was somebody else. <laughs> Uh, well, anyway, yeah. that's my memory of Wheatley. Um, and the other, the other great memory was that um, Christoph Eschenbach was always coming in and staying. They had this little, um, they had this little side building um, that w they would give to the top conductors that came to Tangwood to stay there. And I would sort of serve him wine and, and take care of him in his little um, sort of airy up there. And it was a beautiful place. And he was a really great guy. Um, so I remember some of the conductors that were um, that were really cool coming through there, and a lot of a, really, a lot of really great people that that were there. It was a good place to um, to learn about serving wine. Um, and when I when I stopped doing that, I was working at a company that financed magazines and still had an interest in wine. This was a magazine that came along as a client. And the guy gave you a hug and a kiss on the lips, and he was like, "David." No, fortunately, no. <laughs> So what, no, you were, we, we battled a lot, actually. <laughs> the guy who um, ran this magazine and I battled a lot. Yeah, he's still he's a magazine over in Australia still. So, so there was an Australian guy who started Wine and Spirits. About 1982, I think it was. Yeah, and he came um, to you looking for. He didn't actually come to me. I was working at a company that financed and managed magazines, and he had um, he had started out in '82, got written up in Gourmet, got a lot of publicity from that, developed a little circulation buzz and developed some advertising buzz and then spent a lot of money um, that he didn't really have. So he brought this company in to help him and it was the last client that I sold. I was like my partner and I, um, we would go in, she would look at the books and I would sort of sell, the, sell this company's services. And we went out to San Francisco, never been to San Francisco before, and we both thought, wow, this is a really beautiful place. We went to Berkeley where this magazine was based and thought, what a cool idea to have a wine magazine. And um, we left the company after that. 
And the guy came to us about six or eight months later and said, I want to work with you guys. I like you guys better. Um, can you manage my company for me? We did that for about five years and then I bought it from him. What year did you start as editor and publisher? Well, he, he kept the title as editor and publisher in 84 when we started. Um, I think that I took that on, I think, in, in 86. And then when I purchased the magazine, I started making a lot of changes on it. Um, so in 89, we really started doing a lot, of, a lot of different activities like the restaurant poll that we've done for, what is it? I don't know, almost 20 years now, maybe more. And um, we started doing our annual buying guide, which we just closed and sent to the printer two days ago. Um, if I sound exhausted, that's why. Um, and we just we started working with a lot of different um, a lot of different ways of tasting wine and learning about how to taste wine in an effect what we thought was a more effective way for a publication. And what what does that mean? Well, it means that when you're trying to recommend wines to somebody, and I think about being back in college and somebody coming to me and saying, "Hey, what should I buy?" Um, there's a relationship between you and that person. So we really needed to figure out, A, who our audience was. And we did that by doing a lot of education work in business schools, law schools, culinary schools. We did a whole program talking to people about wine and hearing how they responded when they were tasting with us. So we're really teaching them how to taste wine and listening to how they responded to those discussions. Um, we went through a lot of different critics during that time. We worked with Craig Goldwyn at the American Wine Competition, I think he used to call it. Um, we worked with him for a while. He was doing blind tastings, and we really wanted to be doing blind tastings, and that's what the magazine was founded on. So we liked the idea of his doing blind tastings for all the American wines. We ended up taking that back in-house in, in about 94, I think it was, and then worked with Robert Finnegan, um, Burke Owens, and then I ended up being the California critic in about 2000 or so, um, just because we felt that the editor of the magazine really should be trying to articulate what was interesting going on in California wine, that the, the editor of the magazine should be, of, a, of an American wine magazine, really should be focused on the American wine culture in a way that, you know, a lot of people will say to me, well, you don't really have an American palate which I think is a bogus thing to say, but a lot of Europeans say that to me. They say, oh, well, you don't taste like other Americans. And I say, no, I'm American. I am very much an American. I, I won't move anywhere else. I've been offered to move places I won't. And it's really important to me as an American to articulate what my American palate is. It may be different from a lot of the people that are either my competition or that are wine drinkers in this country. Um, but I think that any critic, if they are articulate about why they're recommending a wine, that can be useful for people. So that's why I really wanted to, when, when we made the decision that I would be the California critic, that was really the reasoning behind it, to, you know, to try to build our critical team all in-house. So Tara Thomas, who's been with the magazine 16 years now, she started the Culinary Institute working with um, Michael Weiss and Stephen Colpan, doing their tastings there. And she's been with the magazine since 97, and she's really grown up in our culture, up in our tasting culture. Um, 
Patrick Comiskey started as a tasting director out in the West Coast. He's our critic for Oregon, Washington, and all everything other than California. Um, Luke Sakura, who's in our San Francisco office now running all the tastings, he's developing as the Central Coast critic for California and is slowly taking over a lot of the other parts of California from me. So I'm really only doing now um, Mendocino, Sonoma, and Napa, um, plus a lot of imported wines. Um, but we have really worked hard. Pat Patricio Tapia, who covers all of um, Spain, Argentina, Chile, he's someone who came, moved his family to New York in like early 2000s, spent two years as a tasting director in the New York office, and really learned our tasting culture there and comes three times a year to taste those wines here in our New York office. So it's very much, um, it's been not only sort of developing a process, but also really developing the people to do it. Um, and all the people who are critics for the magazine, you know, they've been editors in our tasting section, in our tasting department first. One of the things I've noticed about you is that you're a patient taster. You really think about wines um, in an era where, I don't know, snap judgment and kind of uh, authoritative sounding uh, was kind of in. And maybe the 90s, you, you kind of stepped back, thought about it, and thought about how the wine was kind of coming to you. Often I hear you say, it hits me in this kind of way. Um, and thinking about it more texturally, how did, how did that kind of develop? Was that sort of coming out of the talking to people and hearing what they wanted to hear? Or was that for you in a way like articulating in speech, but articulating it to yourself as you taste? I think there, there are two answers to that question. One is um, what goes on from here to you, you know, when, how, how I would talk to you about it. And the other is what goes on inside my head. Um, what was really valuable to me was for about, as I say, for about 10 or 15 years, teaching people about how to taste wine and listening to, not only to what their response was, listening to how I could explain to them how I was tasting so that it wasn't just swirl, sniffs, spit, you know, slurp and spit, whatever they, those 4S things are. But it was really, you know, when you smell a wine, what are you... What are, you, what are you responding to? And, and how, how can you talk about that without feeling like a fool, without feeling pretentious, without feeling like you're talking in jargon, without feeling like you are, um, you know, how can you express your response without being fussy? And, and how can you communicate about it? You know, really communicate. So that's, I think, really teaching about tasting became really valuable for that process to learn, okay, well, this is what is going on in my head. What can I say about that? Um, take a step back, and when I sit down to taste a wine, I want to just, you know, having all this experience of just tasting blind for years and years and years, it's meant that you develop strategies. And I think that the other thing that's really helped me is going to Australia to taste on their show panels. I've done Canberra twice. I've done Adelaide twice. Um, I've, I've done a number of different shows in Australia as a guest judge. And when you're there, you're with really talented, knowledgeable winemakers. And they use those judges judging systems to move up through the ranks of winemaking and 
and get to be more respected among their peers, it's almost like a peer review process, those, those tastings are. So you have to know your stuff and you, you can't get away with bull. You can't get away with, oh yeah, I liked this wine or, or it has a pretty nose or it's, um, it's really long. You have to explain exactly why you liked it. You have to say what was wrong with it if you didn't like it. You have to be able to defend every single wine. And, and you'd be in situations, I was in a situation one morning in Canberra faced with, I think it was 160 Chardonnays on a table. We had, each of us had a booth, white booth on a white table, looking at those Chardonnays. Some people would sit and taste 10 at a time, next 10, next 10. I spent about 15 minutes thinking, how the hell am I gonna taste these 160 wines and defend what I, first of all, I didn't at the time think much at all about any Australian Chardonnay. I still have a trouble with a lot of them. So here are 160 of them. What, you know, what can you say about these wines? And so the tables all had these kind of white checker um, pattern on them. And I thought, okay, I'm going to go through and smell every single one of these wines and move the ones forward, far forward that I think smell really, really good. Move the ones far back that I think smell horrible. Keep the ones in the middle that are sort of neutral. And, and then I'm going to go through and smell and smell and taste all the good ones. And then I'm going to go through and smell and taste the ones that are in the next line. And then the next line, the next line. And I'm going to save the garbage for last. And that was probably the most valuable lesson I'd ever learned by being faced with that horrible situation, figuring out how to deal with it. That's how I taste wine now. When somebody presents me with 12 wines in a flight, I smell through them. And this is really hard to do, actually. It's hard not to smell it and taste it. But I'll smell through all of them if I'm strong enough to remember to do that, and I usually do. And then I'll decide which I want to taste first. And so I'll often have a different response to the wines than the other people on the panel because they're tasting through in the order that they were presented. And I'll often tell people at the beginning, there's no need to do that. Taste them in whatever order you like. But people tend to go one, two, three, four, five. And wine number one can easily affect the way wine number two tastes versus wine number three versus wine number four. And by being proactive about what you're tasting first and keeping the nastiness till later and keeping the really aggressive wines till later and tasting the elegant wines first, you often find wines that other people are missing. Um, the other thing about our tasting process and something that's evolved over time is that we use it as a culling process. So the, the panels are recommending or not recommending wines. The critics are then tasting them again. This is at Wine and Spirits. At Wine and Spirits. And they're tasting them again, and then they're tasting them again the next day, the ones that they really like, and seeing what happened to them. And they're tasting the ones that they really liked maybe two days later and three days later, depending on what kind of wine it is. If it's a really great vintage of Bordeaux we'll, or a great vintage of Burgundy, we'll often taste those wines for a week. Germany, same thing. And Madeira for a year. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah. I mean, it's no, possible, it's, though. <laughs> it's possible. And I mean, we've had wines that we went back to a month later. Yeah. Not that we were reporting on that, but we were curious. And Are those the ones that are in the bathroom? Exactly. Okay. <laughs> just making sure. There are a lot of bottles. <laughs> In the restroom of wine spirits. Um, we did have our spirits collection of 
the sort of the wastrel spirits collection in the in the bathroom, the things that we decided we were never going to um, taste, and it was sort of like a hall of shame. Um, of you know, there were there were a lot of cream liqueurs, a lot of um, really weird mezcals that we that were too scary to open. Um, we taste a lot of spirits, or not not our wine tasting stuff, but our other our other spirits tasters taste a lot of spirits. But a lot of stuff just comes in over the transom that we don't want to touch, and that's where that ends up because yeah. it's close to the sink. Is yeah. also, <laughs> but it, I mean it, that is interesting. Is that you know a lot of wine publications do wine spirits. Uh, if there are publications, they do spirits, you know. Mm-hmm. But you guys have always had the focus on both, and you've had some strong critics come out of the spirit side. And yeah. you always David laugh. Wondrich was our one of our spirits writers for a long time. Um, Chris Hollowell, who's now selling wine, he he's written about spirits for us for a long time. Um, there have been we've always felt that, especially with things like cognac, with with brandies. Brandies are very related to wine, um, but also. Whiskies are incredibly complex, and you go to a place like Maysville, where they have 160 or 170 bourbons, and then another 170 American whiskies on the on the list. It's crazy how many different bottlings there are, and there are really beautiful spirits coming out. So we we do like to cover that, and we like to find ways of talking about those two. Our audience is mainly wine drinkers, but a lot of wine drinkers drink cocktails now. A lot of wine drinkers drink really elegant spirits. So we want to talk about them. And the other thing I've noticed about the publication over time is it always seemed to have uh, an in-depth education focus. It always kind of wanted to tell you, you know, what the real thing was behind the ads, behind the thing. It really kind of got, you know, with small fingers into a subject and uh, wasn't just about like, Hey, it's beautiful, whatever place. You know, it was like, here's the soil and the climate of this. You know, it almost kind of moved more into if I were hanging out with winemakers and they were telling me about farming and I wanted to translate that, part of what I would need to tell you is some of the farming. Yeah. And I think that wine is about farming or the wines that the wines that our critics like are they're all about farming. Um and I suppose that magazines probably invented the word lifestyle. You'll never see that word in wine and spirits ever. Um, we don't talk about the wine lifestyle, which is something that a lot of lifestyle magazines talk about. Um, I don't feel like I have a lifestyle. I don't feel like anyone that works at the magazine has a lifestyle. Um, we think about wine as something that goes with food. That's how I learned about it. That's how Tara learned about it. That's how Luke is learning about it. And really, um, Patrick was a sommelier for a long time before he came to the magazine. And so I think that that's because we think about wine as a beverage to go with food, because we think about it as an agricultural product rather than a, a, um, an emblem that you show off to people that I own this bottle of wine and it's part of who I am. Um, we approach it differently and we approach talking about it in the magazine differently. Um, we want to talk about how, where it's grown and how it's grown affects the way it tastes. And that's, I think, very challenging to articulate. It's very, it's very hard to understand immediately when you taste a wine, what the growing season and what the soil and what the vine itself 
you know, the, the actual plant itself has to do with what you're tasting. But it's much more interesting than the oak that was used or the fact that it was de-alcoholized or the fact that it was made to be delicious. You know, I, I, I feel very strongly that wines that are about quality with quotes around it are a little misleading because all wine should be about quality. Everyone should be able to make a good quality wine now. What wine should be about is the distinction that, you know, if you're paying a lot of money for a bottle of wine, it should be about how it's different from every other bottle of wine. Um, you were just meeting with Nick Mills from Ripon and visiting there, seeing the way he grows his grapes. He's in one of the most beautiful places in the world. And he has a very direct relationship with that place. His family's been there for a number of generations. He grew up there. He understands that spot in the world and also feels really strongly about trying to articulate it through his wine. Um, seeing someone like Nick work is fascinating. And I don't think Nick thinks about a lifestyle either. He thinks about his life on a farm. And the wines that he makes are based on his life on a farm with these plants that are also living things. So if we think about wine qualitatively, we tend to be stripping out a lot of what's interesting about it. And you can make really expensive wine that way that tastes like any other really expensive wine. There's no distinction from one to the other. So you begin to scratch your head and wonder, why am I spending $200 a bottle on cherry juice? I could buy cherry juice at the store for a lot less. Maybe add some alcohol to it, have my own $200 bottle of wine. Um, learning that, I think, takes a lot of work on the part of consumers. Sommeliers spend their lives learning that. That's their career. And consumers that are, there are a lot of consumers that are really intrigued by that. And there are a lot of consumers that are really intrigued by where food is coming from, by, you know, I mean, fortunately for us as a magazine, there is a growing network of people that really are into and passionate about where their food comes from, how it's grown, the process around growing food, and how it affects you as a human. So that to me is really what wine is about as the ultimate agricultural product. It's like the ultimate thing that you can use to articulate your piece of ground. And what we are all about in terms of digging in in detail in articles is trying to talk about that, trying to help people understand how people are working to accomplish that. And one of the things that I've noticed that you do and you referred to earlier is you've invited people in to help taste through and kind of cull through the wines that you have as samples. And a lot of times those are sommeliers. You've kind of reached out to the sommelier community uh, for a number of years. Uh, how did that engagement start and, and what do you find beneficial? We like to taste with sommeliers because they are training. You know, right now there, there's, there are a lot of very passionate sommeliers trying to get their MS. And they're studying all this trivia. They're studying all of this, just sort of absorbing all this information about wine from everywhere. 
so that they are never at a loss when someone asks them about a wine and that they are never at a loss when they're taking their test. As part of that, they really need to learn how to taste. And I think that tasting the way we do at Wine and Spirits is really valuable to them. We present them with all these wines that some of which they bought and put on their list, some of which they like very much, some of which they think they don't like. They taste them blind in the context of other wines from that same region and vintage. And often their responses are very different from the responses they had when they were standing with a buyer checking out the wines and deciding, oh, I think this wine would be good or I think that wine would be good. Also, their their responses are different than when they sat down and tasted that wine with food. And for them, learning to project those things and saying, okay, wow, I really missed on this. Did I miss on it here? Did I miss on it when I tasted it with food? Did I miss on it when I tasted it with the buyer? What's going on? Um, I think for them, it's really a valuable process to sort of to begin to deepen their ability to taste wine and to understand what they're tasting and to be able to put up the right kind of filter when they're tasting with someone else. It's really hard to taste with someone else and not be influenced. You know, taste with someone who's selling you wine, someone who's made the wine. You taste in someone's cellar, it's like, how could you not like their wine? It's offensive not to like their wine in somebody's cellar. How has that helped on on your side? I mean, I understand. Oh, it's how that... tremendously valuable for us because here are people who are among the most knowledgeable people in wine in the country, sitting down and tasting with us. Bernie's son tastes with us often. You've tasted with with us a lot. I remember your your list at Convivio when you were at Convivio. You had the most the wildest events that you were doing with these completely weird wines that nobody else knew about. You know, there there are people in the city that have a lot of esoteric knowledge, bringing them in to taste with us is tremendously valuable to us and to our readers. We share that knowledge with our readers and it's, it's a conduit. We become, our critics become a conduit for those Psalms to talk to directly to our readers. And we often use Psalmias. I mean, you've written for us once or twice. Um, other Psalmias have written for us once or twice. We, we like to, we like to use Psalmias to talk about their perspective on wine and things that they know intimately because really from my point of view sharing expertise is really what our magazine should be about it's not about celebrity it's not about who's the richest guy in napa or who's the richest guy in bordeaux it's more about who's making really cool wine in napa and who's making really terroir driven wines in bordeaux um so to, to find those things out, sommelier is really, there'll be a lot of discussion at our tasting table about those topics. You know, there are wines in California that have gotten tremendously high scores in other publications and have been brought by psalms to our tastings and we'll throw them into the tasting and they won't get recommended. Or we'll taste them after the tasting and people will be like, really? And that kind of sharing, we feel like we're sharing a lot with sommeliers and we feel like the sommeliers are sharing a tremendous amount with us and our readers. So it's for us, it's a very mutually beneficial relationship. We think that the restaurant poll we do is tremendously valuable to our readers and to psalms. We think that the, um, the peer-to-peer poll we do in our October issue is really valuable to sommeliers. 
we think our top 100 event for San Francisco Psalms is incredibly valuable. It's like the sort of love fest and, you know, the San Francisco sommelier community and, the, and a lot of retailers there as well. Um, I don't want to diss the retailers. I mean, there are some great retailers who taste with us and, and a lot of great retailers who come to that top 100 event. But it really is, um, we, we found that we, because of our background as critics with wine and food, we find that we really relate more to the way sommeliers approach wine. What was the restaurant pool? What is the restaurant pool? And how did it get started? The restaurant pool started out in 89 when I was working with a friend who had been at Gallup polling and, um, and opinion research in Princeton. Um, and he was helping with the magazine sort of part-time and then he came on full-time. We were sort of scratching our heads thinking, what can we do that would be interesting research that we could report? that would be valuable to this community of readers. And so we, the first restaurant poll was really simple. We just basically gathered some basic information about each restaurant and asked them to tell us their top 10 best-selling wines for the fourth quarter of the year. And we sent that poll to all of the most popular restaurants in the Zagat guides around the country. So at that time it was a pretty small list. It was like, there were probably maybe 20 guides at that time and there would be 40 restaurants in each guide so it was it was just really starting out um we each year we've added the most popular restaurants from the next year's guide taking away the ones that closed um so our list is now up to about close to about 3000 things like 2800 restaurants that we pull we've added the new and notable restaurants that we cover in different cities that when we really we have especially in New York and San Francisco, we do reporting on, because I think that we should be doing more in LA on it too, because there's a lot of restaurant activity in LA and, and in, in Vegas. Um, but certainly two of the most vital towns that we cover are San Francisco and, and, and New York in terms of restaurants. And each year we cover the ones that we think are the most interesting new restaurants with great wine lists. So rather than just looking at their food, we're looking at the combination of their food and wine. And we've added those people to the restaurant poll as, as well. Um, they also come to our Top 100 event and serve food to go with the wines at our Top 100 event, which is really cool. Um, like A16 will be at this year's, they have a new Rock Ridge restaurant, um, 1601 farm, Farmhouse in, um, in Marin. There, there are a bunch of people that are gonna be there serving. So that, that's really exciting that those people come and serve really good food and with really, really great wines. Um, the restaurant poll itself has been a barometer for a lot of the big brands. So I remember that there were certain major brands in California that would use it in their financial statements as where they were on the restaurant poll. And it's also a really interesting barometer for the little brands that are showing up in restaurants like Hirsch. Um, which is a tiny brand from the far coast of Sonoma. But Jasmine has been out in the last few years, Jasmine Hirsch has been out promoting her wines to all these top level restaurants. And they're beginning to show up on the restaurant poll, which is, you know, so by hitting this kind of restaurant, salespeople can drive, people do try to game the poll that way. In the end, it doesn't necessarily work for them. 
um, because I think that some of the restaurants know that they're being gamed a bit. Um, but I do know that people are out there with our list. And the other reason it doesn't really work that way is that each year, different people on our list respond. So they could hit the people on our list from last year. Nobody has access to our 2,800 names. Um, and so it it's hard to game it. You can work it, but it's hard to game it. And it's been, from my point of view, it's a really interesting list of brands, especially in the smaller regions that are showing up that people are into. And it's it's shown a lot of trends developing over time right now. In the last four or five years, it's been explosive in all of these little Loire wines and all these little um, much smaller production wines, things from last year, we saw all sorts of Eastern European wines showing up for the first time. And so you see things that don't necessarily get reported in the top 50 brands, but they get, we find them when we're entering the wines into the database, we find all sorts of weird stuff that we've never seen before. And we report on that. We talk, we follow up with Psalms. We talk to them about what's going on with Eastern European wines. And at our event here in New York, where we show the restaurant winners, um, last year at the event, we had we brought in all of these Eastern European wines because we thought, wow, this is completely unusual. And it was a really great part of the event to have wines that no one had seen before. And a lot of the Psalms really liked that. And you have another feature where you do kind of the best young sommelier, mm -hmm. and you, you do a few uh, sommeliers to kind of highlight them. Uh, how did that get started, and what do you see as the kind of effects uh, of that? I don't know that there are really effects of it. I think that it's predictive of who's going to be really high-powered in the field. Um, like Dustin Wilson, who's now the head at the head psalm at um, 11 Madison. He was one of our best new psalms about four or five years ago. It got started basically by um, Gillian Handelman wanted to do a poll. We were, you know, we, we were looking at ways of expanding on our connection with Psalms. And Gillian Handelman, who was our marketing director at the time, she wanted to do a poll of sommeliers to see who they thought was up and coming. And so we went to the quartermaster sommelier and got access to their list of all the people who had been taking their classes and everything. And we put together our list of sommeliers and we put together our list of tasters. And we ended up doing an emailing of about 20,000, 22,000 names altogether. Um, and tally all the responses and then look to see who gets the most votes. And they're definitely, you know, what's been really wild about that particular poll, we report on that in our October issue, that's what's on the stands right now. Um, there have been people who have tried to game that, and we've been over the years very, very cautious about checking on all the votes that look a little sketchy. Um, so we are... Do you want to tell us who? No, <laughs> no, because you would know some of them, actually. Um, but, oh, you're referring to me. Wow. <laughs> it only happened but once. It only happened once, Levy. It's okay. Um no, it's it's um it's been an interesting process to learn how to really restrict the voting and how to and how to prevent it from getting gamed. Um, but it's been also a really valuable asset for those Psalms who win, and it gives them a leg up, both in the in their efforts to become master Psalms, 
Um, Master Salmias, it gives them a leg up in their careers in terms of um, where you know where they're working, and um, it it also gives them an acknowledgement. Um, I think that there is a real desire in the Salmias community to be taken seriously. Chefs have gotten all of this incredible praise for their work. And sommeliers, I think, are doing really valuable work in restaurants and deserve praise for the work they're doing. So this is one way that we can highlight the ones that are doing really good work and have their peers make that decision. We're not making that decision. Their peers are making that decision. Has the distance between up and coming and up and come gotten shorter as it seems to me over the course of my career, like the sommelier uh, world is more and more populated by young people? I don't think the distance has become shorter. I think the new Psalms have become younger. We have, I think, two in this issue that are barely drinking age, which is crazy. You know, I mean, um, Chad at RN74 was, I think, 21 when he started at RN74 or something like that. I mean, he's just, and he's, he's a brilliant taster and he's a really great sommelier and he's these can't be much more than 22 or 23 now. So people, because of the wine culture developing in this, in this country, and because a lot of, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with people who, when I, as I say, when I was growing up, my parents didn't drink wine. The next generation, when they've been growing up, their parents did drink wine. And that whole generation of people who were affected by the 60 Minutes report on red wine their parents starting to drink a lot more red wine. It's become much more, wine has become much more of a part of our culture. So teenagers are probably more exposed to it at home. They're deciding, hmm, this might be an interesting career. And certainly when I was growing up, there were no, I never saw being a sommelier as a career. It wouldn't, my parents have, would have completely freaked out at me if I told them I was going to be a sommelier. It was bad enough that I was a wine writer, but a sommelier, forget it. Um, and now it's a legitimate career and it's, it's become very highly respected and highly regarded. And people are looking to do that at a very young age and, and taking it seriously at a very young age. Have you seen characteristics of sommeliers that were, say, successful or that you really respected that uh, kind of stand out for you amongst the group? Like, are there things that you notice about sommeliers that are like, oh, okay, that works or that doesn't work? I think that there's a personality trait that I associate with the most successful sommeliers that um, it has to do with a way of being respectful without being patronizing. Um, I think someone like Thomas at, at Nomad has that as a young som. I think that certainly um, Dustin has that. Um, at 11 Madison, where there is a sense of their own, their own, they're, they're not self-deprecating in any way. They're not putting themselves down in any way, but they're being tremendously respectful to their guests and their guests' tastes um, and trying to help their guests, not trying to push stuff on them. Um, and it's, I mean, they, those two sort of share a persona in some way. It was, it was interesting at Nick's event 
at Nick's event for um, for Ripon yesterday, both Dustin and Thomas were pouring the wines. And to see them together was was fascinating to me because they've both been best new Psalms at different times. Thomas is younger. Um, but they both share that that persona. Um, very passionate about what they do, very enthusiastic about what they do, and also extremely respectful. Are there older sommeliers? Because both of those people are fairly young. and We get a lot of grief from older sommeliers who say, we want you to do a best older sommelier poll. <laughs> well, I mean, really, are there that many older sommeliers anymore? I mean, there are some. They're they're not working the floor generally. Some are, but they're you know you think about someone like Bernie Sun or Daniel Jonas or um, Raj Parr or you know there there are certainly people who have stayed in the industry and been very much mentors to a lot of the young people in the industry, but they're not working the floor. I mean, I was at um, Perry Street with some friends last week and I told Bernie I was coming in and he was very kindly there and served us, which was great. I mean, having Bernie's son serve you wine is a real treat. He's and he's a good friend. So it's um it's something that means a lot to me that he was there at Perry Street handling things. Um but that's rare. I mean Bernie has a lot of really good people that work for him. They're all working the floor. And more often you see Psalms going on to work either in distributors or to become like Paul Roberts, who's at Colgan now, um, who was at Harlan before, you know, I mean, he's gone into um, Larry Stone, you know, who's gone into the industry side, which is probably a lot more remunerative, um, especially at that level, and a little less backbreaking. You know, it becomes schlepping boxes up and down stairs, narrow stairs in New York City or anywhere becomes exhausting after a while. So let's uh, swing back to the magazine. You were there uh, in, since the early 90s in terms of really hands-on with the magazine. And what kind of tectonic shifts in the industry have you seen it, in that time? It seems like there have been several shifts. I wonder which stood out for you. The biggest shift, I think, was the red wine boom and how that played out both with critics and with winemakers and with consumers. And when you think about Merlot in the 90s and then Shiraz at sort of the late 90s, early 2000s, and then Pinot Noir in the sort of 2003, 2004 and on, the progression of really big, soft red wine starting out, big, rich red wine, where people were, in Australia, I think that you know they destroyed a lot of their market by making these gargoyle wines. And there are these incredible, I just wrote about the Luke Lambert Syrah in the last issue as a wine that people should know about, because there are these incredible Syrahs that are coming out of Australia that are delicate, fresh, nothing like what people's sense of uh, a Shiraz from 2000 would be like. Um, but those were getting huge scores from some of the wine critics and really had nothing to do with where they were grown or anything. They were all about manipulation and late harvest. And um, 
then Pinot Noir came along and sort of dissed Merlot in its own way. And people began to think about, or at least talk about, more elegant red wine, even though a lot of Pinot Noir in California is blended with Syrah. You know, I mean, you can't sell Syrah in California, you blend it into Pinot Noir, which is crazy. Um, so you make Pinot Noirs that taste like Syrah. There are a number of people who are making really, really beautiful Pinots in California with nothing like that. But many of these very big, powerful Pinots, it's not what Pinot's about. Um, you know, Pinot should be a delicate wine. And it shouldn't be about varietal character. It shouldn't be about fruit. It should be about where it's grown. Um, so theoretically, we're moving in a direction toward wines that do speak of where they're grown from wines that are just pure fruit bombs. And there is a generational shift in the whole critical community around wine because the people who were promoting fruit bombs before are sort of irrelevant now. Um, a lot of critics are irrelevant now. I mean, we're, you know, we're in a generation where the internet is much more relevant than wine critics. On the other hand, there's a lot of expertise among wine critics. They know a lot about how wine is grown, where it's grown well, who's doing the good work. And that's tremendously valuable for the wine community. So I don't think we're all going away. Um, but I do think that we need to learn how to talk about wine more effectively than we have in the past. And that, that I think is the that shift, that, that red wine shift is probably the biggest shift that I've seen in, in wine since I've been working in it. You know, there's all sorts of, um, there are all sorts of weird trends. There were, there was the weird trend of the animal labels, the cute animal label for a while. And now there's this weird trend of bizarrely named wines from young sort of hot winemakers. But all that stuff is kind of flashes out. It doesn't really make an impact over any long period of time. I think that what does make an impact is people discovering really great new vineyards. And that's been certainly in California. I, I would say one of the most satisfying things about my job is to find those people who have discovered great vineyards and watch them develop them. And I think about that whole region on the far coast with flowers and Hirsch and Pei and Cobb. And I mean, there, there are incredible vineyards out there that didn't exist 20, 30 years ago at all. They, that area wasn't, you know, there were, there were vineyards there, but they weren't incredible vineyards. And they weren't at the top of the ridges. They were further inland and lower down. Um, so to see that kind of thing develop, to see the kind of things developing in Mendocino County on, in parallel to that, and to see the kinds of farming developments where people no longer think that biodynamics is voodoo, but begin to understand that if you're really plugged into your farm, there's value in that, that, that People like DRC and Domaine Lefleve are working with what was once considered voodoo. Um, and they're doing it because it's improving their wines, because it's 
to say it's improving their wines is probably wrong. It is making their wines more transparent, which to me is improving their wines. So you talked about regions where 30 years ago there was nothing there and now there's something there. Have you seen regions where 30 years ago there were wines that you wanted to drink and now there's not? That's tough. Um, yes. The answer is yes. Um, I spent much of my early career in Bordeaux and there are still Bordeaux wines that I love, but I've basically given up on Bordeaux. Um, I feel like Bordeaux gave up on, if I consider myself middle class, um, I think they, Bordeaux gave up on the shrinking middle class and decided that they were only going to sell their expensive wine to very, very rich people. And it's become irrelevant to me. And it's deeply upsetting to me um, because I think that Bordeaux has some of the greatest wines in the world, but their wines are not worth what they're selling them for. And they're selling them as objects for people to, they're selling them as lifestyle objects. And I think that's, I think that's a false direction. Um, Burgundy hasn't gone that direction. Burgundy is very expensive for top level Burgundy, but you can still buy really great Burgundy. And I still can buy really great Burgundy personally. I can't buy really great Bordeaux. I have friends with whom I drink it because they have it or they make it. And I love that, but it, is offensive to me that I can't buy it. And I'm not poor, you know, but it, I think that it's, um, the Bordelais will tell me that I should be satisfied by drinking Cru Bourgeois and there's tremendous Cru Bourgeois around. But I don't think that's, a, I don't think that's a way to stay relevant in the wine industry. Um, and I'll probably get in trouble for what I just said, but it's, um, it's honestly the, the thing that upsets me most about the direction that wine has taken in my career is that it's become a um, it's become a collectible object of desire rather than something you drink. And when, you know, literally 15 years ago, I would order Latour in a restaurant and I could. It was $150 15 years ago in a restaurant. I remember when I was I was teaching classes down in Tulane. And I was visiting a friend's restaurant and they had Latour on for $150 for a good vintage. And I thought, oh, wow, great. I'll spend that. And $150 is a lot of money, but it was a great wine. Now they sell that wine for $2,000 or $2,500 or some ridiculous amount of money that's irrelevant to anybody but the 1% who have the money to do that. And it's just not, it's not right. So you mentioned you know, in terms of the changing digital landscape, that what matters most is how we talk about wine. How do you imagine people will talk about wine, say, in 15 years? Or will it be one way? Or will it be different kinds of ways? Or what do you imagine that conversation to sound like? Well, I think wine is going to change so dramatically over the next 15 years due to climate change. You know, we look at how the Finger Lakes has come up in the last 30 years, and you can find studies about climate change from 30, 40 years ago that talked about how the Finger Lakes would become a place for growing great wine. And it's happened. And we are facing a huge, you know, over the next 20 years, there'll be a huge shift in where wine is, where great wine is grown and what great wine is grown in classic places. Um, Bordeaux already has Syrah planted, um, though nobody talks much about it. Um, 
California will be completely regrouped viticulturally in 20 years. And that doesn't mean that California will no longer make great wine, but the places where great wine comes from will be based on a completely different set of factors, climatic factors. Um, so I think the most radical shifts will be due to climate change. And we're, you know, we are as an industry, the canaries in the coal mine, we are, because we have the most articulate agricultural product, we see climate change first before everybody else does, before it's going to ravage other crops, it's going to ravage grapevines, and or it will produce wine that tastes like port, which is what we see a lot of. And you'll hear winemakers saying, oh yeah, this is my decision to make a wine of this style. And I don't buy that. I think they're dealing with climate change in the most effective way that they think they can. But I mean, in terms of the speech, what what will we be saying about these wines? I have no way of knowing that. I really don't. I mean, as a, you know, as a critic, I try to take each wine heads up when it's presented to me. And I am as reviled by certain people as respected by others because um, there's certain wines I just, I just won't ever recommend. And um, I think that it's, it's impossible for me for me to predict what those will be because people are always making different stuff, you know, and, and it's, um, how we talk about it. I don't think will really change. I think that people will become more savvy about what they're drinking because we are a very young wine drinking culture. And as the 21 and 22 year old sommeliers train the 21 and 22 year old wine drinkers, those people, when they become 40 and 50 will be, much more educated about wine than we ever were. Um, there's also just so much variety of wine in this country that to try to predict what it's going to look like in 20 years, the market is just too vast. It's like trying to predict what people are going to, what books people will write in 20 years. Speaking of the vast market, uh, how does it work with a national publication trying to talk about, you know, what, might be available in one part of the market, but not on another. How do you make decisions about like, oh, okay, this is big in New York, but I don't see a lot of it in Milwaukee, uh, but we're going to sell this publication throughout this, the country. You know, we don't really focus on that because we think it's up to our readers to either get on mailing lists or to use Wine Searcher or other tools that exist now to find wines that they want. Um, I certainly would not decide to not report on a wine because it was a small production from a little vineyard in Mendocino. Um, Jason Drew had a couple Syrahs that are like, you know, 50 cases a piece. One from Valenti, one from Purley, I think is the name of the other vineyard. Unbelievably beautiful wines. Some of the best Syrah I've tasted from California ever. And would I not report on those because their small production from a little producer on the, you know, in Elk, in Elk Mendocino. No, I think it's important to talk about those. I'd like to see him develop his production. I'd like to see him. I mean, we see our 
role in the industry as discovering things for our readers, helping our readers discover things. Um, I don't really care if it's a small production wine. I care what it tastes like. And a lot of, you know, you look at German wines, my God, German producers will parse their production down to sugar levels and, and ripeness at harvest and um, different little blocks of different little vineyards. And they'll make, I don't know, 30, 40 different bottlings. Some of them will only be noticeable by a code on the back. It's horrifying, I mean, to try to figure that stuff out. On the other hand, some of them are really, really great. I think our readers should know about those. So I think the tools exist now with the internet for people to be able to find wine. And if they can't find that particular wine, they could get at least turned on to the fact that, oh, cool, Jason Drew's making these really great wines in Mendocino. Maybe I should get on his mailing list and find out about them before they get sold out. What are other places that have really surprised you um, in terms of, hey, that's a really great Syrah from Mendocino. What are some of the wines or some of the regions that over the course of the last few years you've been like, whoa? I think that Douro never ceases to surprise me. Um, I mean, we've talked before about you know, the one place in the world where I have the one place in the wine world where I actually looked at land to buy was Douro. Um, I, I looked at land to buy in Chile as well, but um, I was very serious about putting an offer in on this place. And then I decided this is about 15 years ago and decided, nah, I really need to focus my energies here. Um, but I think that growing grapes in schist is an amazing thing. And there are so many different terroirs within the Douro and so many different wines now being made from those different terroirs that you get very light, fresh red wines. You get these big, rich port wines. The 2011 vintage is astonishing for port and will, I think, bring some much needed attention to that region. But it's not just port wine. I mean, there are there's so many great young producers in the Douro making some of the best wines that have ever come out of Europe. And I get really excited about that region. I think that, I mean, in Portugal, the other region I get really excited about is Bairada, much more troubled region, but amazing potential for the terroir. And Dirk Nieport, who's been probably the greatest proponent of Bairada. Well, I mean, Louis Pato is kind of behind it, no? Louis Pato is behind it and, and um, Mario Sergio at... Um, you know, those, those two guys are the guys in Bairada, but in terms of Dirk has actually a distribution company in Portugal and has been buying up Bairada and selling it to Portuguese people for a number of years. I see. And he actually just invested in, um, Canada Baixo. Um, so he's actually bought land there. He'll be making, he has been making wine there and he'll be releasing his wine soon. And I think that's going to put a lot of attention on that region that hasn't been there before. Um, I think the Loire is one of the most exciting regions in France for me. I just, you know, if I were going to go on vacation, I would go to the Loire. If I were going to go on a wine vacation, it would be to the Loire. I just love being there. I love eating in the Loire. I love drinking in the Loire. I love the people there. Um, for the quality of wines that they make, they're very humble people. There's no pretension and, um, I mean, I could drink Loire wines all the time. And Champagne, I guess, is the other really exciting place for me um, that, that hasn't been discussed during this 
just during our talk today. But with climate change, champagne is becoming more Venice. Growers are becoming more, more and more able to make a living selling their own wines because they don't have to deal with these crotchety vin vintages. And I think the wines coming out of champagne are astonishing. Josh Green, he will be astonished and he will help you discover that astonishment. Thank you very much for being here, Josh. Thank you, Levy. It's been a pleasure. Josh Green of Wine and Spirits Magazine. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.